Friends, it's a joy to be in the pulpit again tonight uh, to share God's word to you, to us, his people, uh, to let it speak to us through the ages. And again, uh, just by way of reminder, uh, much of what you hear tonight comes from the Sunday School series, our Sunday School this class, The Sojourners, has been walking through uh, in the book Strength for the Weary uh, by Derek Thomas, served as much of the inspiration for uh, our um, for the sermon tonight, uh, just because it's just so darn comforting uh, to, to look at this book of Isaiah, the fifth gospel, and to hear God proclaim his, his promises to his wayward people. And so uh, as we turn our attention to God's word, let us uh, read it in its fullness, Isaiah 46. That's our passage for consideration tonight. Hear now the word of our living God. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who've been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save." To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer. Or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, stands forever, friends. Let us pray and ask his help as we interpret it. Gracious Lord, as we hear you compare yourself and contrast yourself with the idols of your people, would you... Help us to hear the rebuke for how you're confronting them with ears ready to listen. Would you help us to see the transcendent 
beauty of your faithful care that you present to your wayward people in this passage. With eyes able to see and ears able to hear and a heart that's able to love because you are at work in us. And we know this because you, our God and Savior, have appeared and brought to fulfillment the very promises of what you said you would do in passages like these. So help us now as we come to your word by your spirit, for it's in Christ's name that we pray and ask. Amen. So in, the, in high school, one of my favorite novels I got to read in junior literature was The Things They Carried. It's a novel by the author Tim O'Brien, and it's, uh, it's about uh, the Alpha Company platoon in Vietnam that he was a part of. And it's his stories and collection of observations about the men of his platoon as they uh, come to grips with the devastating effects of war that they're experiencing. For example, Tim O'Brien carries a picture of a girl whom he's not sure whether she will even return his affection. But the picture of her helps him find his way through until one of his platoon mates and comrades in arms is killed. And he actually blames his infatuation on this picture with this, uh, uh, for the death of his friend. Other objects that they carry are normal, common-issue items soldiers would carry. An M16, a two-pound poncho, shovels, mosquito repellent. But in the book, O'Brien uses the list of physical objects that the members of his fellow soldiers carry to serve as a... a a vehicle for talking about the emotional burdens of the warfare that they were waging and how they're weighed down by these things. One such burden is the necessity for young soldiers to confront the tension between fantasy and reality. And it's a masterful book that captures the toll of war well and the grip that it can have on young men. But there's a similar confrontation that God is actually accomplishing for his people in this passage. And for those of you who were here last week, uh, we, we saw that God was, had proclaimed his deliverance to people in exile. That he would use an unlikely deliverer like Cyrus, a pagan king. And the problem was that his people were having a crisis of confidence when they heard about God's deliverance of all things. Instead of resting assured, they were actually wondering what in the world God was doing. And so God himself tonight is zooming in on their hearts, on the things his people are carrying in their hearts, helping them come to terms with the burdens of what the things they carry exact upon them, and contrasting himself with them so that they would turn from their idols and trust in the living God who is actually going to carry them home. The, Lord, the Lord's means of deliverance is a source of confusion and shame so that his people complain. But here the Lord asserts his absolutely ceaseless care over his people that they might turn and trust him and wait upon the fulfillment of his promises. And this passage teaches us that it's only when we understand our God's tenacious care that we can turn from idols that confuse and conceal his ways and rest in his strength to carry us all of our days. It's only when we understand our God's tenacious care that we can turn from the idols we carry 
to the God who carries us. And we can find rest for our souls. And that's our our headings for tonight. Just two points. We're going to look at the idols that we carry. And then we're going to look at the God who carries and conquers for us. So the idols that we carry. This chapter opens with a vision. Like the, the vision that Isaiah received was of a deliverer that would come in the last chapter. Cyrus. He's even uh, told he's God's Messiah, which is causing a lot of confusion and shame for God's people. And this passage really picks up on Isaiah 45, uh, verses 9 through 13, as God's people have complained about his deliverance. They're confused at the ways that God is working, as we've already said. And here God zooms in. After he's given this vision of deliverance, he zooms in on another movie picture. And this time the picture is of two statues. Baal and Nebo. And they're, instead of like upright, they're kind of like on their sides and they're just being carried off. And it's a word picture that God gives his people. And you had to know a little bit about the, the ancient Babylonian religion to understand what God was doing in talking about Baal and Nebo. Baal was the chief god of the city of Babylon and the chief god of their religion. His name was also Marduk. He was the one who was credited with bringing order out of chaos in their creation myth. It's, uh, and Nebo was his son, who was also the chief god of the city of Borsippa, about 10 miles downriver from Babylon. He was a god of wisdom. And the story of uh, their creation myth was actually celebrated every year in a festival a festival that celebrated and brought in the new year called the Akitu Festival. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It was one of the most important events in Mesopotamian religious life and political life. It was called the New Year Festival because literally what they would do is they would parade their deities through the streets. Like Baal would literally be on a cart carried by a horse leading a procession through the streets of the city. And Nebo, his son, would be carried in as well during these New Year processions to try and interpret the tables of destiny because of his wisdom on behalf of Baal's, uh, on behalf of Baal, the chief god Marduk of the Babylonian religion. And the king at one point would take Baal by the hand at the climax of the festival. This event portrayed the enthronement of their deity and it would literally involve people carrying their gods through the streets. And it's almost like God is actually doing a wordplay on what these exiles would have seen as they were in captivity in Babylon. And he's saying, these gods in whose name you have been carried off, they're actually going to be carried off. They're not, they're not upright, they're, they're, they're led, they're bowing, they're stooping. The words in the Hebrew, they're literally sinking to their knees. They're bending over as if they're under great strain. And they burden the beasts that they carry them. Instead of a noble steed like a horse, like a white horse of victory, it's a weary old donkey on a cart carrying this dumb statue and idol. Both of them, they're being carried away because it's a vision of what God is actually saying is going to happen when Cyrus, God's deliverer, comes. Remember, Cyrus was the king of Persia who conquered Babylon. And the problem is, is they stoop and bow... Because they cannot save. They are brought to their knees 
by the sovereign word of the God who has actually decreed that his people would be delivered. And what God is actually doing is he's comparing and contrasting himself with the false idols that these people would have known in his day and age. It's a picture of a much different procession. These divine images were reckoned uh, not for glory, but of great shame. It's a parable of their weakness and inability to save. Scholars think that God is literally taunting his enemies in this passage. He's mocking their powerlessness to save. Much like when Pastor Zeke preached on the confrontation uh, with uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's the same person in the Babylonian religion. And what, are the prophets of, what does Elijah do to the prophets of Baal? He mocks them when they can't summon their deity in uh, 1 Kings 18 to actually burn the sacrifice to prove that they've been heard. And he's mocking them saying, like, maybe your God's busy and he's on a holiday. Maybe he's like in the restroom and indisposed for the moment. And God here himself is mocking these chief deities of the Babylonian religion because they were the signs of power in which their kings actually conquered. These were the kings that actually took their names of their deities as title to their reign and rule, like as, as, the, as the very definitive way that they were supposed to look uh, or, or their, that their rule was supposed to be understood. For example, in Isaiah 39, when Babylon shows up in Isaiah 39, in, in the first part of Isaiah, go back and read it tonight. Hezekiah is confronted with them, and he's seeking security from Merodach Baladon, a name meaning that he was the heir of the chief god Baal. He shows the entire treasury of Israel to Babylon, and it's the great sin of Hezekiah because God says, you've shown them everything? You've sinned. Like, the, things are going to go very poorly because they're going to be the ones that carry you off. Because what Hezekiah was doing was he was trying to find security in the powers of his day to protect him from the other political oppressors that could be there. Assyria. And God is saying, those in whom you have sought refuge, those in whom you have tried to find rest and comfort and security... They are utterly un incapable of saving you. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon who was driven mad, he takes Nebo's name in his title as king. These would have been the deities that were the powers that had supposedly helped Babylon conquer the world. But now they're sideways. And a worn out old donkey's carrying them away. God is comparing himself. He even goes in verses 5 through 7 to say, or verses 6 and 7, to, to show the uselessness of these idols to save. He says, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver, they're costly idols. You hire a skilled craftsman to make them into something beautiful, and then they're just a lump of gold. They can't hear you. They can't save you. You have to lift it on your shoulders to get it to move. If you cry to it, it actually can't answer you or save you from your trouble. Because that's the problem with idols. God's showing them the false gods to whom they looked for security in to save them from the forces of their day would only fail them. And in fact, 
the very things that you had looked to carry your burdens would carry you off and themselves be carried off by his divine power. These idols that you look to to save you ultimately burden you. And he's liberating his people and proclaiming their deliverance from these idols that actually cause God to seem hidden. You have to wonder, why would you actually worship a God that you have to carry on your shoulders, sits in its place, and cannot answer when you cry out to it to deliver you? It seems pretty foolish, doesn't it? But the reason that you would is because that God actually can't require much of you because it needs you. And God is saying, you have thought that I have needed you. But I have actually loved you and shown you now that these things that you thought you could control and find security in, you're actually, they're going to carry you off and themselves be carried off because they can't save you. They can't save you. They actually weigh you down. The people of God essentially become like the idols that they worship. So that God's own ways seem confusing and hidden. Remember in chapter 9, they were the people that said, What are you making to the potter? Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? That's the scariest thing about their idolatry is that throughout this book of comfort, God's people repeatedly assert, you've actually hidden yourself from us. You've not been faithful. But here God is confronting and exposing and mocking their idols saying, actually, the way that you've thought about deliverance is different because you've actually thought about a false god's deliverance. That's why he's rebuking them in this passage because they're stubborn of heart and they can't see it. If you flip over to Isaiah 48, I believe it's in verse uh, 22, where he's saying, I decree these things to you. Um, not verse 22. I declare, verse 5 of Isaiah 48, I declared these things to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. God is competing for his people's affections because idols have stolen their affection in him. And we may be tempted to snicker at the people of God's uh, stupidity, their stupidity at not being able to tell the difference between the true and the false thing. But as we saw this morning through Davis's sermon, how do we pay homage to little idols in our lives? We are also about some aspect of preserving safety and finding comfort, acceptance, power, or control that can help deliver us in our lives. And we, we might not bow down at little idols of gold and silver and waste our, our, our resources on them, but there's plenty that we idolize as God's people. We are masterfully gifted at looking for the wrong source to actually satisfy us, as Davis eloquently preached this morning. I love the image of the elephant that was up on its hind legs, 
reaching with all of its might for the, te- the, the leaf at the top of the tree. And yet it's just out of reach. That's what God's doing, is he's exposing how what they're looking for in these false gods is actually burdening them and making his own kindness and goodness seem out of reach. Because it's going to carry them away, and it cannot actually save them. You may wonder what the idols are in your life. And it's easy to think of the idols of our age like romantic love, right? I just want someone to spend the rest of my life with. Or financial prosperity. If I just make this much more money or get this promotion or this house or this, this, this sort of place of security, then I'll be set. Then I can finally rest and stop killing myself, working for it. Or for power. Why do you think politicians are so, still so popular even though they never deliver? Because we ultimately look to them for something that only the Lord can give and security. But more nefarious are the hidden idols of our heart. Those are the easy ones to pick out because those are the ones that our culture can so easily blind us to. It's easy to point out and say, oh, those are the idols of your age. Like, just avoid those. But there's hidden idols of our heart as well. Usually, usually, even larger idols, more common idols in our religious community. Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, more difficult to spot are the ways that our idolatry functions inside our own communities that are religious. It can take many shapes. For example, it can take the shape of doctrinal truth. You show contempt and disdain for people who don't think like you. Presbyterians are super good at emphasizing doctrinal truth. Nothing wrong with that. But for Presbyterians, our tendency is to to sort of place our flags and the purity of our doctrine as the thing that will carry us and make us feel really good that God's happy with us. The sign that you do this is that you actually become a scoffer, Keller says. You show disdain for people who don't think like you, people in a different denominational background. Or we can take the idol of spiritual gifts or ministry success. You can confuse What are the gifts and fruits of the Spirit with actually people's talents? We're really good at doing this in the church. We take someone's gifts at preaching, teaching uh, their ability to, to, to grow a church. And we make that the measure of success. And it's an idol that actually blinds us. Because instead of looking at the character that should be characteristic of God's people, we emphasize the externals of what they can accomplish. Or it comes from being a church that's 140 years old. It's so easy in a place with such an amazing legacy of God's faithfulness to it to let our legacy of God's faithfulness become its own idol that serves as a source of security and comfort in the sight of God. Friends, we do this with any number of things. One sign that you might be struggling under the burden of an idol is that God's ways, though, seem confusing and uncertain to you. Just like God's people in this passage. I asked that question last week. Have God's ways ever seemed confusing or uncertain to you? And we have to be careful when we say this. The confusion that God's people experience is not always because of their idolatry. 
It can be because their suffering and suffering disorients us, right? It can be because our circumstances cause us to think that God has abandoned us in some way. But what's true for God's people in this passage is that the idols of their day and their culture and their hearts had led them away from looking to the true God who could save And God is comparing himself with them that they would turn, turn away from those idols, find rest in his ceaseless care, and wait upon the fulfillment of his promises. But that brings us to our second point. God is exposing the idols that carry us away. And he's actually going to show us the God who carries and conquers for us. Something none of our idols can do for us. But before we go there, it's easy to think that as God is exposing and mocking the idols of his people, that he's scorning them for the very desires of what they need. God is not doing that. He's simply showing the insufficiency of their misplaced desires to actually save them. And he's pleading with them like a good father to turn their hearts back to him to find refuge in the only one that can actually save. He's confronting their idols, putting them through the disorientation and confusion of what they're actually experiencing so that he can call them to rest in the shadow of his wings even more. And the way he does that is he shows himself to be the God who carries his people He says, listen, O house of Jacob. The the rest of this passage is structured by the two words, listen. At the very center of it is the command to remember. Okay? And when he says, listen to me, he, he says, I'm the one who bore you from before your birth. I carried you from the womb. And I'm the one that's actually going to carry you down to your gray hairs in old age. That word for carry and born is words that God uses throughout Scripture to denote his exodus of his people, his deliverance of them. He's the one who carried them on eagles' wings, who bore them and lifted them out of the land of their bondage. He's done it since before they were a nation. God carried them. But what is beautiful here is that God speaks to these people in exile who are wondering at his promises. And he says, don't let your circumstances fool you. I will still be the God who carries you beyond what you can comprehend right now. He even structures it in an emphatic statement, like I am the one, I will do it. He's arguing with him. He says, none of these idols can do it. It's actually me. He's trying to get their attention and graciously shake them awake like a parent would a child who just can't get what the parent has said. He's saying, child, please hear me. I'm the one that actually does this for you. But he's not just going to carry them and bear them. He's going to save and make them again. The word for save, to deliver, adds dimensions that reflect how God's been showing he will save and create his people anew. When this word for deliver is used in the Hebrew, it can refer to escape from death or help of the afflicted. But when used of the Lord, it refers to his ability to deliver and totally save in salvation. He's the protecting, delivering God. By contrast, escape is not found in the strength of the horse, the might of another nation, 
or riches or in one's own understanding, but in the God who can carry you out and lift you up from the circumstances that need deliverance. Because that's what God is trying to tell them. You're looking to the wrong source of what can carry you. I'm the one that can carry you. And I will carry you. And he's saying this to people who are mired in their sinful unbelief. It's one thing to expose the idols of God's people. But it's another thing to understand that as he exposes and harasses their, this picture of their false gods, that he's actually harassing them with his gracious intention to save them and turn their hearts back to him. He's arguing with their unbelief. He's saying, look back to me. Remember the former things of old. Stand firm. Don't let the disorientation of your circumstances make you forget the faithfulness that I've displayed, nor the faithfulness that will characterize the way that I carry you through the rest of your days into your old age. That's why God says, remember Because the God who has decreed their deliverance simply does it by a word. He does it by a word. That's that's the agent that actually happens. He decrees Cyrus as the king who will come. But he does it by his word and he calls them back to his word as the source of why they should take confidence in his delivering care. Barry Webb's a commentator in Isaiah who puts it this way. It's it's as if God is asking Israel to reflect again on the absolute absurdity of their idolatry and contrast it between that and their covenant faith. Idolaters carry their gods, says the Lord, but I carry you. I have carried you since you're born and I never will stop carrying you until your days are done. This last part of the chapter can seem a bit gruff of the Lord from the way that he refers to his people as blinded and sinful, but he's undoing the spell that their idolatry has woven over them. He's rebuking them, yes, for their unbelief, but in the gracious pursuit of a God who delights in his children. And he will not settle until they turn back to him and see him as the one who will carry them. But he's not just the one who's going to carry. He's the God who will also conquer, which is why he calls to mind the imagery of Cyrus. Again, he says, I'm the one who's appointed a bird of prey, a man of counsel from a a far country. I've spoken and I will bring it to pass. And from here, he's showing the superiority of himself over the gods of Babylon. But in the next chapter, he's actually going to talk about how God himself will humiliate the foes of his people, Babylon. And yet they're wayward in their unbelief still. But scripture picks up on that imagery for Babylon. And if you fast forward ahead to the book of Revelation, chapter 18, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. 
All nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. God asserts his caring, conquering care over his people. He says he's going to bring a deliverance because God himself will come through that deliverer. In the immediate future of God's people, it's Cyrus who will take them out from Babylon and bring them home. But in the ultimate deliverance that God's going to accomplish through his suffering servant, whom he forecasts in the book of Isaiah, he will defeat all of his people's foes so that nothing can separate them from finding rest and refuge in his care. Another servant will come, and we're familiar with the story of this suffering servant who would bear the burdens of God's sinful people's hearts, that they would be his holy possession for all eternity. He will finally defeat that spirit of the age, Babylon, that captivates the affections of his people's hearts and set them free through his conquering work to find rest in his ceaseless care. Because even though God is speaking to exiles, he's also speaking to us who must learn to trust in his care as we wait upon the day of his promises fulfillment. Friends, do you hear God graciously pursuing You, who would also be idolatrous believers. Us, who would would substitute the glory of God for an image that we hope to find some security or acceptance or satisfaction or control or comfort from. This passage shows us the gospel of a God who pursues his wayward people when they are far from his righteousness because he alone can do it. Oftentimes we think when we're aware of God exposing the ways that we've not been faithful to him, like he is with his people here, that we should feel shame, that we should feel distant from God. But that's not how he ends this passage, does he? He ends it saying, you who are far off, you who are stubborn, take hope because I am bringing my righteousness near and the certainty of that is guaranteed by the simple promise of his word friends if God spoke these words to exiles who were confused and felt ashamed because they felt as if God had abandoned them because the gods that they had worshipped had misled them how much more should we take comfort And the God who ceaselessly cares for us, even in the midst of our unfaithful worship of him. Because he's the same God then that he is now for us. And the word of his promise that he has asserted through his servant, Jesus Christ, will bear fruit in fulfillment and has already begun to. That's what we read about in the passage in Colossians that Jesus has exposed the powers of this age, through his suffering and death, so that you and I might find rest 
and refuge in the shadow of his wings. Friends, as you look at this passage, as you see God's people struggling with their confusion over their idolatry, it's easy to grow disheartened to see ourselves too much in their own faithlessness. And yet it's in the midst of our stubborn-hearted, faithless far-offness that God tells us, take heart. Because I will come, I will conquer, I will carry you home. Not just today, not just in the past, but in all of your days. When we realize his ceaseless care over us, it allows us to turn from those idols that would captivate our hearts and rest as we await the fulfillment of his promises. May God help us to be the people who are found faithful as we wait upon him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. Lord, that even though we are lulled to sleep by the idols of our hearts, that you seem hidden and far off and we're confused. You promise a day where the confusion of our hearts is no longer going to be the case. It's no longer going to reign and confound us, but we will find ourselves confirmed and standing in your care. Because even down to our old age, you are the king who will carry and conquer on our behalf. So help us as we learn to wait on the fulfillment of your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.